morning again. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, we'll be reading from verses 13 all the way to verse 20. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 16, and we'll begin in verse 13. The word of God says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be, uh, have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should not, uh, should tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that um, your spirit would illumine our minds so that we can understand your word. Father, for some of us, that understanding will be that uh, we need to properly identify who Christ is. And Father, I pray that the heart will be convicted of sin and that they'll put their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Father, for other of us, I pray that um, you'll show us those things that we need to change to become more like Christ and less like ourselves. We know that's your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. The idea of identity is uh, something that started getting a lot of... Uh, attention before the pandemic. Uh, people were talking about their identity and uh, what pronouns they wanted people to be addressing them. So they not only identified them as, as a certain way, but uh, they also wanted other people to acknowledge that identification and uh, address them in a certain way, using of certain pronouns. Uh, regardless of who they were, they wanted to be identified in certain ways. And uh, we saw this kind of ramping up and, and, and a lot of talk about it, but then the pandemic hit and uh, something interesting happened. Uh, there, there was reports being given of people infected. And there was a category of men infected, women infected. There was a category of men that died and women that died. And uh, there, there wasn't any other categories. That, that was it. Just men and women being sick and men and women dying or recuperating. I haven't seen yet a number for recuperating. But uh, we, we see this. Um, and then now here recently, this kind of idea, things have kind of maybe calmed down a little bit. Uh, people are wanting to express themselves with certain, uh, you know, pronouns as, as who they are. Now, do we have the capability of identifying ourselves? 
Well, on a certain level, I would say, yes, we, we are able to identify. I would identify myself as an evangelical. I would identify myself as a Baptist. I'm a fundamentalist in the sense that I hold to the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, those are things that I identify myself, but then there's a certain other level that I can't alter, that I can't change. In fact, I had very little to do with. Uh, for example, my DNA. Uh, I, I can't change my DNA. It was given to me. I can't change the place that I was born. I didn't choose to be born uh, where I was born. I can't choose my parents. I, for as much as I want to maybe change who they were, you know, uh, or I could try to identify myself as being the, the son of the king of Spain, it still doesn't change the reality of who I am and, and where I was born. So on a certain level, there are certain aspects of myself that I cannot change. Uh, it was chosen before I was even born, and really I had no say in it at all. Here we see this idea of this identity and it's really important that uh, we understand who Christ is because we must properly understand Christ to have a proper identity and to belong to the proper group. If we mess up who Christ is, we'll mess up what our identity is. We won't have a compass to know who we are. And we'll just go on and on saying we identify ourselves with X, Y, Z. But if we understand who Christ is, we can understand who we are, and we can belong to the proper group, which is the group of the disciples in the church. We're going to look at some questions in this text. And the first question is, how do others identify Jesus? How do others identify Jesus? We see there in verse 13 and verse 14, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now, this is an area that's way up north. It's probably around where Dan was. This isn't a place that is a Jewish city anymore. This is a, uh, this is a Gentile city. What in the world is Jesus doing in a Gentile district? What is he doing? I mean, he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, and now he's way up in the north, northeastern part, uh, up at this city where it had this temple that was dedicated to Caesar, they worshipped this god named Pan, which was this kind of woodland-type deity. Uh, they would go out into the woods and have this ceremony and stuff that they would worship. It's a pagan, pagan, pagan district, pagan city. And now Jesus is going up there, and he's asking this question where he gets uh, identified correctly by his disciples. We have to wonder, why is he doing this? And I think what it's happening here is that there is a hint of a, uh, of a change in the program that God is doing. Now, some of you, your ears perked up when I said change in the program that God was doing, uh, because change, change implies a certain imperfection. I was driving down this road, and I didn't realize that there's construction work on, and so I had to change and detour and go another way. It, it acknowledged an imperfection. So if I say that there's a change in God's program, am I then saying that maybe God is not as perfect as he is? Is there an imperfection in God? Well, no. God is perfect. And he's immutable. He doesn't change. Another aspect of God is that he doesn't have potential. 
You, you, you bring the little child home after he's born and you look at him and you see, wow, there's just so much potential there, right? You see so much potential in that kid. And then around two years old, they're walking around with a plastic bat hitting themselves in the head. And your expectation of potential drops quite a bit, right? You're like, I don't know there's that much potential. God doesn't have potential. He doesn't go to a workshop and try to learn a little bit more. He doesn't sign up for classes and say, hmm, I'm gonna, I'd really like to know how to do this, so I'm going to take this class. There, there's no potential in God. He, he knows all, and he's immutable. So we have where Jesus has been presenting the kingdom to Israel, but then we get introduced to this concept of the church here, and there's a change in program. What's going on? There's not an imperfection on God's part, and he's immutable. We know from James, he's, he's not like the shadow that moves. No, he doesn't change. The change is from our perspective. See, God offers, Jesus offered the kingdom, and he knew they wouldn't accept it, the hardness of their heart. He, a bona fide offer, here, take it. His plan all along was to have the church reach the Gentiles. But he knew that they would not accept it. So the change is from our perspective, not that God changes. We see here that he, uh, the, it says there in the verse, he comes to Caesarea Philippi, which is already hinting off at some change that is about to happen. And he's asking the disciples, so on one hand, you have disciples, and then on the other hand, he says, what do the people say? So on one hand, you have people, and the other hand, you have disciples, and Jesus is marking a difference between the two groups. You have the disciples, and then you have this other people, and what is it that these people are saying about Jesus? And it says specifically, he uses the title, the, the Son of Man. What is the Son of Man? Now, we look at those words, yeah, son, doesn't have any big uh, implication of, is it just a prepossession, man, you know, you see man appear all types of places. But when you put the three words together, it, it becomes a technical term. And you can tell that it becomes a technical term because uh, the response that they start saying, they start going over this list of prophets. So they're not just saying, oh, they say you're a guy from Galilee, no. They anticipate that this is a technical term. And in fact, it's something, an echo that uh, Jesus is doing from the Old Testament. We see it most clearly in Daniel chapter 7. You remember in Daniel chapter 7 that there's this vision of these kingdoms that are being established. And finally, the Ancient of Days comes. And we see in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that there's this one like the Son of Man, and he receives dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and the peoples and the nations of every language that might serve him. We see that in verse 14. So here's this one like the Son of Man that comes, and he receives the kingdom and glory and power from the Ancient of Days. So he's using a technical term here, saying, who, who are people saying that I am? Who is the Son of Man? Well, um, they want to reply. Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist, uh, even Herod, uh, thought that maybe this was John the Baptist reincarnate. He had killed John, but uh, he said, I mean, they're very similar. You go to Matthew chapter th 3, verse 2, and you see that 
Jesus, uh, John was preaching repentance. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent. And then you go to Daniel chapter 4, I'm mean, sorry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and you see that Jesus is urging people to repent over and over again. He says, repent, repent, repent. Uh, so, you know, they couldn't look at their Facebook profiles and see what they looked like, and so you hear the message. The message seems very similar. John's preaching repentance. Jesus repa- uh, preaching repentance. They must be one and the same. So some are saying he's John. Others are saying maybe, maybe he's Elijah. Now, why Elijah? I well, we can't point to a specific part of why they're thinking Elijah, but you remember in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a famine in the land, and uh, Elijah had to go up, and there he found the widow woman, remember? And uh, she's out gathering sticks, and uh, he asks to eat some bread, and she tells him of her dire situation. He's like, I've got enough flour and oil to make myself a little bit of bread for me and my son. We're going to eat it, and then we're going to die. That's it. And uh, Elijah says, hot dog. Make it first for me, and then, uh, then you guys can eat. Um, I don't know what it would have been like in that town. Can you imagine? There's no ovens going. There's no food. She is baking off a loaf of bread. I guarantee you that whole town smelled that one loaf of bread baking off. Uh, and she serves it to him. And interestingly enough, she doesn't run out of flour or oil. Well, we know that Jesus, he, he did this miracle where he produce food uh, for multitudes of people. So maybe in this sense where Elijah produced food so that they could continue eating Jesus also, and so maybe the miracles somehow, maybe it's Elijah reincarnate. Others thought maybe it was Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He, he preached to Judah. He, he preached to them, telling them to repent, repent, repent. In fact, if you look at the book of Jeremiah, it's a collection of sermons, one after the other, preaching to the people. And Jesus did his fair share of preaching. So maybe he's Jeremiah. Some didn't want to really commit. Uh, They're like, "Uh, I think he's a prophet. Uh, Which prophet? Uh, You know, one of those. They didn't want to commit to who he could be. Maybe he's this one that is mentioned in Deuteronomy, that there was going to come one who was like Moses, who spoke to God face to face. Maybe it's that prophet, but they, they don't want to be pigeonholed, and so they, they say, maybe he's just a prophet. Which one? I don't know. He's a prophet. In this couple of verses, we see that Jesus hint about uh, a Gentile inclusion, where they're going to be reaching the Gentiles, is becoming clearer. Here's this confession being done over in Gentile territory, not in Jewish territory. But it's been God's plan all along to reach the Gentiles, so there's something different going to be happening. We know from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, that he says, um, uh, It is a small thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49, verse 6. So God had already a plan to reach. He was wanting to use Israel to reach the nations, to reach the Gentiles all the way to the end, so that they could have his salvation. But here there's hinting off something more specific that we're going to be seeing that will 
continued to build up all the way to chapter 28, which is to go out and make disciples. We also see that two groups are established here. There's the disciples, who he's speaking to, and then there's the people. Uh, now, in the people, they identify Jesus. Let me be very clear. They gave him some really good titles. I mean, it's not like they were being offensive, you know, they didn't say like, you know, he's and, and used some derogatory term. They used really good titles. They said, uh, John the Baptist. If you remember from Matthew uh, 11, 11, Jesus said there was no one greater born among men, uh, women than, than John. And just stop and think about that for a second. No one greater? I mean, Moses, who gave them the law, and John's greater than Moses? Or David, the great King David, who conquered all the lands, and Jesus said that John is greater than David? Or Solomon, with all his wisdom, and yet John is greater, according to Jesus. And the prophet Isaiah, I mean, the prophet Isaiah, he, the visions he saw of Israel being restored, of all the nations coming up to, to Israel to worship God, a, a, a time of peace, a, a kingdom that would be established, of peace, a perpetual peace. And Jesus says that John's great. I mean, it's not like they were insulting him. The problem is, is that it falls short. If your definition of Jesus is just a prophet, it falls short. He is a prophet, but he's so much more than the prophet. Now, do we currently misidentify Jesus? Oh, yes. Some will say he's a good teacher. Uh, he, he has some really good lessons. Some say he was a good moral teacher. He offers us some good moral guidance. Uh, being a good teacher is, is all right, but it doesn't really have a lot of implications in your life. I mean, I've had a bunch of teachers in my lifetime. Some of them I don't remember their names. And a lot of times, if I don't remember their names, I'm probably not putting much attention to what they taught me. So being a good teacher really has no implication on how you live, what you do day to day, how you think, how do you act with other people. Some see Jesus as a liberator, like uh, Simón Bolívar in South America, like Castro or, or Che Guevara, or, or, or George Washington. Jesus was a, a liberator, somebody that, that cared for the poor, that, that cared for the outcast. It is true that he did that. But he's much more than that. See, we see this big problem in that um, if we're identifying Jesus as just a good person, as a good teacher, we're falling short. And we're not going to be identified with the disciples. We're going to be identified with the people. These people who misidentify Jesus, they don't understand who his identity is. And the complication about not understanding who Jesus is uh, really starts to grow and compound. For example, Jesus uh, said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you reduce Jesus down to just a prophet, you have no access to God the Father. There's no way that you get to God except through Jesus. And if you reduce him down to just a prophet, you don't get the Father. 
not only do you not get the Father, but in Acts, I'm mean, sorry, in John 16, 13 through 14, uh, Jesus is promising about the Spirit and that the Spirit will guide believers in truth and that the Spirit will glorify Jesus. So if we don't understand who Jesus is correctly, it means we don't have the Spirit guiding us in that truth. So by misidentifying Jesus, we miss out on Jesus, we miss out on the Father, and we miss out on the Spirit. That that's, that's ends up becoming one of these people that are lost. It's, no long, it's not a disciple. The, 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 these people that are lost, they have information. And they're identifying with, with other Bible stories. It's not like they're ignorant. They have Bible stories. And they're correlating some stuff here, but they're not really understanding who Jesus is, and therefore they're not a disciple. And if you're not a disciple, you're lost. You don't have the Father. The question is now, how do we identify Jesus? How, how do you? I'm not talking about verbally, only verbally, because we've already read the passage, so you already know what to say, right? If we were to give a test right now and pass out, not pass out papers, that would be, uh, but, you know, if you, we did a test somehow, and, and you would say, oh, I remember you just read it and put Christ, Son of the living God. I'm not saying just verbally. I'm saying, how do your actions match what you confess? How do you live day by day? Is he really the Christ, the anointed one? And therefore you submit under his authority and it impacts all of your life. Or is it just something you verbalize? Verbalizing is not enough because people are saying stuff all the time. The first question is, what do the people say? The second question is, how do disciples identify Jesus? So how do people identify Jesus? How do disciples identify Jesus? And we see that in verse 15 through 16. Uh, in verse 15, it says, And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Now, Peter's going to respond, but the idea is that the response is not just his personal response, his personal testimony, but rather he's confessing for all of them. Um, we can see that through other passages, if we want to correlate it, we can see that they all have come to this conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. So he's, he's making a... a declaration based on what everyone is believing. And he says, you are the Christ. Now, uh, you are uh, is, uh, is in the indicative. Now, what, what, what's the indicative? The indicative gives an assertion of who something is or, or what it is. Uh, he is. This, this is a reality. Not that he will become the Christ, not that he was the Christ, but it's a current state of reality which he is. He is the Christ. And he says, not only that, but uh, the, um, the Son of the living God. Now, Christ carries this idea of um, the one who is going to be fulfilling the expectation of Israel to deliver. He was the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, the question that we have to wonder and be thinking about is deliver from what? What is Christ going to be delivering from? Well, we could think of on a political scale, well, maybe he's going to deliver them from Rome. Or maybe he's going to deliver them from other political situations that might arise. He's going to be delivering them from their 
spiritual death that they have. Uh, Peter and the disciples, they identify Christ correctly. They identify him, they identify Jesus not just as a person, but as Christ. And this carries, of course, uh, a tone of kingdom, and a kingdom-type tone that he comes to deliver. Now, what is he delivering from? We understand that when Adam sinned, when Adam decided to disobey God, said the day that you eat the fruit, something was going to happen to him, he was going to die. Now, we know that he ended up living a whole bunch of years after that moment that he sinned. So the death that happened was not a physical death, which would eventually happen, but a spiritual death. Now, what does spiritual death mean? Well, people can define it in different ways, but one of the main aspects of spiritual death is separation. They are separate from God. And there's nothing that Adam could have done on his own to somehow bridge the gap. He couldn't, like, spit out the fruit. He, he, there's nothing he could have done to somehow remedy his situation. God had to kill an animal and eventually send his son to die. Death separates us from God. And Christ came to be a substitute, to die in my place, in your place, to redeem us, to buy us out of the slave market of sin so that we could be reconciled to God. We could have a relationship with God. That, that's that idea, the fuller meaning of what Christ came to do. He, he does this so that we could have fellowship with the Father and fellowship through the Spirit. And the Spirit would continue to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ and less like ourselves. So the disciples have identified who Jesus is correctly, but not only they identify him as Christ, but they identify him as the Son of God. He's not just a good teacher. He's of the same essence as God. He's the same essence. He's the same different person, but he's God. And living, not dead, which is in contrast to all the idols that are out there. You go and ask them for help, and what do they do? They just stare at you. They don't do anything. This is the living, living God. Now, um, here they have identified Jesus correctly. And you can see that it's totally different. The disciples, they acknowledge him as Christ. Uh, the people, they are asked the question, and that answer uh, gets, uh, well, you know, he's a good teacher, he's a prophet, etc. Now the question we have to ask is, based on the declaration of the disciples, how does Jesus identify his disciples? Based on what they said, how does then Jesus identify his disciples? Well, we see in verse 17, he says, And Jesus said to him, uh, Blessed are you. Uh, again, this is, uh, this is in like the indicative. It's saying that this is something true of you. And what is true is that he's a blessed person. Now, this word blessed carries a, a different connotations, but it means it's a human who is privileged, privileged uh, recipient of divine favor. It, it's someone who has received a, a special divine grace. Uh, it means that they are in a close relationship with God. When it says that he's blessed, for example, in the Beatitudes, blessed is, blessed is, blessed is, uh, he's saying that these are people who have received a special divine grace. They're in a special relationship with God. 
And he says, this is who you are. This is your identity. Based on your confession, this is now who you are. You are someone who's blessed. You are in a proper relationship with God. You have received a divine favor, a special grace. You're in a relationship with God because of your confession. That, that's exciting to think about. That based on one's confession, one can have a proper relationship with God. Because one, one is born, one has God's wrath upon them. Now, how did Peter come to this? Well, it's quite simple. The verse says that Peter was the smartest one of them all. He had studied more than everyone else. And um, one day he woke up and just decided that he was going to pursue the deeper things of God. And based on his inner light that he somehow conjured up, he came to this conclusion that Christ is the Son of the living God. No. How does he come to this conclusion? Because God revealed it to him, it says. It, not because of flesh and blood. They did not reveal this. But my Father who is in heaven. How do we know God? Had God not taken the first step, we would have never known him. It, 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 that's as simple as it is. God reveals himself to us. And that's exciting because he wants to have this relationship with us, cre creatures. He wants to have this relationship, so he reveals himself. And because of this revelation, he knows how to respond correctly. Now, verse 18 says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, we've been uh, about 2,000 years worth of interpretation on this verse. And um, I don't think that we're going to settle uh, to make everyone think exactly how I'm going to interpret it today. And I will acknowledge that there will be probably some variance in how we can interpret this. Uh, he, he, he mentions here uh, something very interesting. He says, Peter, uh, upon this rock... Now, which rock is it? The rock has been identified in different ways. Uh, the rock could be, could be Peter. The hard thing about identifying Peter and the rock together is that uh, words in Greek have to correspond uh, in gender and in number. So you can't say, uh, have a noun with a, with a masculine, and, and, and pair it up with another noun that's feminine. They, they don't correspond to each other. And Peter is a, uh, is a word that's in the masculine, and rock, it's in the feminine. So it causes a problem, grammatically. Grammatically, you're like looking at me like, oh, it's not causing me a problem. Grammatically, it's causing a problem that they can't correspond to each other. The rock can't be Peter. I know there's a church history that says that he is, but it, it really can't be him. And the other thing that we see here, he says, uh, I will build my church. Now, um, we hear the word church, and we probably don't think another thing about it. We're like, oh yeah, that's, that's that building with the steeple and, and, and so forth. But let's try to get into the mind here of Peter and the disciples, and what did they hear when Jesus said, I will build my church? The word church really just has this idea of a group or assembly a group of people that are called out to meet. That, that, 
on its most basic level, that's what church means. It, it means a group that's called out uh, to come and meet. It's used of a secular group in Acts chapter 19, verse 32. Uh, there they were in Ephesus, and uh, Paul had been preaching. There were several people who were making idols for Diana and for the temple there, and uh, they didn't like this, and a whole uh, people started protesting, and they came together, and it says that the church, the Greek word church, they came out to protest, the word ekklesia. It's also used of in Acts Chapter 7, verse 38, uh, Stephen, when he's preaching, he's talking about Israel. Israel was out in the wilderness, and he uses them as, he uses the word, the Greek word, ekklesia, the church out in the wilderness. So here Peter is listening to this. We, we've got 2,000 years of church history and church uh, theology, so we're, maybe we're, we're thinking a little bit different. But here Peter is listening for the first time. He's saying, I will build my church. What is Peter understanding by this? Well, maybe he's thinking about just a secular group. There's going to be a group of people. Maybe he's thinking about Egypt. But what I think that Jesus is saying is something much more than just a secular group or of Israel. And to do that, um, we have to kind of define a little bit what the church is. Now, um, here's my definition of a, of a church. Uh, the church is body of believers in Christ, from Pentecost to the rapture of the church, who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit and placed into the body of Christ. Now we can spend the next two months just going into that. That's, that's a lot right there. And um, th there's a, probably a lot of uh, people that might debate with me on that. Uh, because implying in that is that there's not a church in the Old Testament. And there's not a church at the time when Jesus is speaking because it happens from Pentecost all the way to rapture. Uh, what would a local church be? A local church is an organized, organized group of saved, baptized individuals. Five guys from crew come together and have a Bible study. They're not organized. It's not a church. A church is an organized group of saved, baptized individuals who has two offices, pastor, elder, deacon, I mean, pastor, elder, or bishop, and deacons, and has two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper, and they come together for the purpose of glorifying God, edifying believers, and evangelizing the lost. Uh, that's, that's what a church is. That's what a local church is. You might want to debate with me on that too. That, that's fine. Uh, how, how in the world, textually, am I saying that we're not talking about a group of people from the Old Testament, or we're not talking about a people even now, that there, I mean, in the time of Jesus, that he's saying that there's not a church there present. You're, you're wondering. I can see it all over your face. You're like, how in the world are you saying that there wasn't a church, that Israel wasn't the church, and we're just a continuation of that? Well, we have to look there in verse 18. And in verse 18, he says... I will build. That's a, a future tense. Future tense means that it's something that will happen in the future. Now, if you want to argue that there was a church in the Old Testament, you basically have to say that Jesus was kind of ignorant of tenses and didn't know how to use them correctly. I would suggest you not argue that, that Jesus knew exactly how to use tenses. And he was saying, this is something that will happen. He will build his church. 
and it's not dependent on me, and it's not dependent on you, Christ will do this. He will build it. So it means it wasn't existent in the past. It wasn't existent in the time that Jesus was speaking. Because that would be kind of dumb, too, to say, I will build, but it exists right now. So that means that John the Baptist wasn't the first Baptist baptizing people into the church. Because that's something that's future. And he's saying that he will establish this, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. It won't. It, the battle's won. It's a done deal. There's no debating of, oh, what are we going to do? You know, we got to... No, he's already won. He's, it's already established. And he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, having the keys of the kingdom of heaven gives authority. If you have keys, that means you can go into places. You have keys into your house and you go into where... I do not have keys to your house, so therefore I don't get to just go in, right? I don't have authority there. They, the church has authority. And this authority is that as they bind stuff on earth, things will be bound in heaven. As things are loosed on earth, those will be loose. And you think, does the church really have that authority? The church has that authority as they act in accordance with God's will. God never surrenders total authority and sovereignty to anybody. He keeps it, and as long as we're working along with what he's doing, this is true. And he says, then he says, and then he warned the disciples. Um, that that's a strong word. Uh, it, it's to define or to express in no uncertain terms uh, one's order, what they're supposed to do. Uh, they should not tell that he was the Christ. They've been given that opportunity, and now they're no longer going to have that opportunity. As we look at this, I just want to make a couple points, just three points. The first is that Jesus says about Peter, he identifies him as a disciple as being blessed, and that's in the indicative. That's his condition. Before God, he is blessed. He has this divine favor. He has this special grace in his life. Those who confess Christ also are in that category. It's something true. In fact, if you look at um, the, the letters of uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, Romans, uh, Paul starts off with the indicative of saying who Christians are. What, who, what's the reality of them? And the reality is that they were in this kingdom of darkness that had been translated to the kingdom of light. And then it says in the later part of those letters, it gives an imperatives, and the imperatives are these commands that are based on the reality of who they are. The disciple is blessed, and they're supposed to live differently. Now, the other thing that we see is that the church is Christ's church. It's not my church, not the elder's church, not the deacon's church, not the founding member's church. It's Christ's church. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 20, Verse 28, it says, Be on guard for yourselves. This is Paul talking to the elders of Ephesus. He said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased. Medical missions is great. I've been involved in medical missions. I've been involved in translating. Orphanages are great. 
gotten to be involved in orphanages, helping out little kids and so forth. And Great. But Christ did not come to redeem the medical missions or orphanages. He came to redeem the church, and he purchased the church. It's impossible to say, I love Christ, but I'm not going to get involved in church. That just doesn't make sense that he purchased, he gave his blood for it. I just want Jesus. I really have no use for the church. That doesn't exist. To love Christ is to love what he's all about, and he's all about the church. The other thing is it says that he will build the church. And 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the foundation, but we know from 1 Peter 2.5 that we are living stones. And which stones does God use? He uses all of us. We're all being used to build this edifice. He uses everyone. Everyone has a part. No one can say, well, my part is just to come and sit and leave. No. We're all being used to glorify God, to edify one another, and to reach the lost. That's what the church does. And if you don't have a part in that, you should get involved. We're all supposed to be building up. We must properly understand who Christ is to have a proper identity of ourselves and to belong to the proper group. And the question is, who is Jesus to you? Is he a good teacher? Is he just a moral compass? Or is he Christ, the Son of the living God? Let's bow our heads. Father, I pray now, as we consider this text and we consider our own lives, Father, help us to get past just what we verbalize. Help us to look at our actions, the actions of last week. Did we live like Jesus was Christ, like he was sovereign? Or did we live like we were sovereign? Father, help us to dig now a little bit deeper. Is the reason that we're acting like ourselves are sovereign, is it because we've never trusted Christ as our Savior? Maybe we know some Bible stories. Maybe we've gone to church for a long time, but we have never put our faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that we'll examine that, and today will be the day of salvation for whoever hasn't done that. Father, I also pray for us that maybe we haven't been living with Christ as sovereign in our life, as the Christ. Maybe we've just been verbalizing, but our lives do not indicate that Christ is sovereign. I pray that today will be the day of repentance. Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me?